episode, I introduced you to the first principle of the mimetic Enneagram, namely the principle of metaphysical desire, which highlights one really important aspect of how we form our identities. Namely, first off, the sense that each Enneotype has that they lack something in their very being. This is not to say that a lack of being is primary to our being, but that it is something that plays a powerful role in shaping who we are. Secondly, I noted the psychological phenomenon of ressentiment, which refers to the reordering of the sentiments in response to things that we cannot achieve. As I mentioned, the principle of metaphysical desire is highlighted particularly by Enneotypes 1 and 4. In this mimetic Enneagram, 1s represent our inability to function without an ideal. That goes for everyone. And 4s represent the struggle to feel that the ideal is attainable. Again, that's something that all of us, no matter our Enneotype, actually experience. In this episode, I want to unpack a basic principle of psychology, which mimetic psychology is particularly adept at describing, namely the principle of reciprocity. This is represented by Enneotypes 2 and 8. 2 symbolize positive reciprocity, and eight symbolize negative reciprocity, although, again, all types have a capacity for both positive and negative reciprocity. In the Analects of Confucius, the sage is asked whether there is a single word that could guide one's entire life. To this question, the master offers the word reciprocity, and then follows this up with the words, what you do not wish for yourself, do not do to others. This idea is stated positively by Jesus in the form that we know today as the golden rule. Treat others in the way that you would want to be treated. Every single major religious tradition has something like this principle in its teachings, probably because it cuts to the heart of all goal-directed human behavior. Human beings are reciprocally motivated. In mimetic theory, reciprocity is named as mimetic desire. We have a natural capacity or even an instinct to imitate the desires of others. If someone holds out their hand to shake yours, it's more than normal to automatically hold out your hand to shake theirs. If someone invites you over to their house for a meal, it's quite natural to feel a compulsion almost to invite them over to your house for a meal, even if the conversation wasn't entirely scintillating. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, that kind of thing. Reciprocity is so ingrained that you might even refer to it as a reflex. We have a natural receptivity to the desire to balance the relational equation. This impulse can be positive, as in the case of the golden rule, or negative, as in the case of something like revenge or ressentiment. This seems fairly obvious at first, but what is less obvious is the fact that we filter this reciprocity reflex through our own specific context-affected consciousness, which is to say that we might quite easily misread the precise coordinates according to which we might balance this reciprocal equation. 
various experiments that have been done on reciprocity, that is, experiments on give-and-take exchanges in human interactions, reveal some pretty fascinating things. The general finding of such experiments is that people tend to escalate reciprocity, which is basically to say that the equation always ends up imbalanced. So kindness in one direction tends to result in a larger kindness in the other direction, and harm inflicted by one person will tend to result in often greater harm being inflicted by the recipient of that initial harm. This is not to be taken as a rule, but as a general principle. There will be exceptions depending, as always, upon the consciousness of the people involved. Reciprocal escalation is demonstrated really well in the story of Samson, and this is in the biblical book of Judges. It's part history and part legend, and the story tells us that Samson is deeply locked into a mimetic conflict with the Philistines. In this way, he is actually a symbol of his entire culture's consciousness, as is the case with many of the heroes described in humanity's myths, legends, and histories. Things are pretty bad between Sam and his enemies, but as you read the story, you start to see things getting worse and worse. Harm done receives greater harm inflicted, and the rage of the Philistines keeps on increasing. At one point, Samson, who is not a particularly bright Enneotype 8, tells the Philistines a riddle. The Philistines were already looking for trouble, so that's not a great start. And Samson, in response to all of this looking for trouble, tries to be smart. The trouble is, the riddle that he offers them isn't particularly clever, and the Philistines figure its meaning out pretty quickly. And so having lost, Samson has to give sheets and clothing to each of the Philistines who'd been involved in this little exchange. And that's 30 men in total. So, Samson is furious um, because he doesn't like losing, and he goes out and murders 30 men um, to so-called settle the score. (laughs) And already things are not going well. In one step, the story moves from a simplistic riddle to the murder of 30 men. And this trend carries on through the whole story of Samson. Violent reciprocity becomes the norm, and of course, the violence escalates. One of the functions of the famous lex talionis, or law of retaliation, was to limit negative or violent reciprocity like this. So we read about that law in Leviticus 24, verse 19 to 21. And if a man cause a blemish on his neighbor, as he hath done, so it shall be done to him. Breach for breach, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he hath caused a blemish in a man, so it shall be done to him again. And he that killeth a beast, he shall restore it. And he that killeth a man, he shall be put to death. The brilliance of this commandment is that it recognizes our tendency to imbalance the relational equation. And so it insists that equal measure is the starting point of justice. An eye for an eye does not mean two eyes for one eye. Well, in Samson's story, he loses both of his eyes to the Philistines when they eventually, with the help of Samson's lover, a particularly manipulative Enneotype II, Delilah, capture and enslave him. And the early readers of that story would have recognized the implication of this little narrative detail instantly. Samson loses both eyes. 
because it was that the entire story's logic functioned according to two eyes for one eye, and that doesn't make judicial sense. Samson was supposed to be a judge, that is, one who deals judiciously, and this is not what he was. Samson eventually kills himself and thousands of Philistines by means of his super strength uh, when he manages to collapse a building on everyone, including himself. And this is narrative code for the idea that negative reciprocity ends badly for everyone involved. Negative reciprocity is ultimately, in a way, an act of suicide, since you kill your neighbor, whether literally or metaphorically, um, and this means to set up the conditions for your own death later. And this is actually something alluded to in the ancient Japanese culture. Sometimes when a man had been dishonored, he would perform seppuku, that's ritual suicide, with the understanding that his enemy, to retain his honor, would need to do the same to himself. So, as Gandhi was so perceptive in pointing out, an eye for an eye ultimately leaves everyone blind, which is to say that even in trying to balance the reciprocal equation, loss and lack become the norms. And in the process, perceptiveness remains horrendously limited in negative reciprocity. In his Sermon on the Mount, this is in Matthew 5, Jesus implies an understanding of this when he points out that the answer to negative reciprocity should be positive reciprocity. Not an eye for an eye, but subverting evil through positive and non-reactive action. Jesus' entire ethics, including his emphasis on forgiveness, is built on the assumption that negative reciprocity equates to a failure to perceive the real presence of God. In the previous episode, I spoke about resentment. Well, resentment is one possible manifestation of negative reciprocity. It's an example of the mind's attempt, not a very good one, to turn a negative into a positive. It amounts, more or less, to the modification of the desire to exact revenge because the person who wants to commit revenge doesn't have the strength or ability to exact that kind of revenge. And this again reveals that we are always filtering the desires of others rather than merely imitating them in their exact form. An act of generosity may sometimes seem to us, for this reason, too generous, and an act of vindictiveness may seem to us to often be harsher than it really is. The reciprocity reflex can be abused, especially with regard to positive reciprocity. In grocery stores, I don't know if you see this, but I certainly see it around where I live, you might find people dishing out samples of tasty food. The sample is free and it's delicious, and next to the sample will be the product that's being promoted. Well, that free sample might bypass your ability to reason, as sensory pleasure has a unique ability to do, and your reciprocity reflex might kick in. Wow, you might think, although not consciously, I've been given something free from that very nice food company. Maybe I'll return the favor by placing that product in my shopping basket. Well, maybe this is a silly example, but I wonder how many people have gotten themselves into bad situations or bad relationships because of this reflex. People particularly high in agreeableness on the Big Five personality model will be particularly prone to this. Someone is nice to you, so you go far and beyond the call of duty to be extra nice to them. 
Someone is horrible to you, so you try to overcome their hostility with your good nature, always at your expense. And this is a particular problem for unhealthy Enneatype 2s, who exemplify the tendency that some people of various types have to act generously even when the cost is too high for them to pay. They're good at initiating the reciprocity reflex, but the escalation to extremes out of a desire to be loved can ultimately cause great harm. They might be generous, loving, serving, but without paying attention to a hidden agenda to manipulate others into loving them. Again, this is something of what I think happens in the story of Samson and Delilah. Delilah, in effect, betrays someone that she loves for the sake of being loved by the empire. So these people who get caught up in this uh, unhealthy way of living even help at their own expense, loving the neighbor against themselves. In contrast to distortions of positive reciprocity, unhealthy Enneotype 8s exemplify the tendency that some people of various types have to act at the expense of others. A kind of tyranny takes over that manifests the 8s fixation on ego revenge. The world, they feel when unaware of their own compulsions, has been unjust towards them. Rage arises from a sense that they have been betrayed. This is a feeling that a lot of eights report um, to have experienced. This feeling is particularly manifest in twos who have disintegrated to eight under strain, or even fives who are just starting to integrate. This manifests in a few ways, such as trying to control others or fit them into a larger scheme, or trying to fight against reality itself because it will not conform to a warped view of what justice ought to look like, apparently. In such a picture, two-ish vulnerability isn't really allowed. Power is all that matters, and the world is easily rendered from this perspective as an impersonal world of objects that can just be moved around and manipulated rather than as the personal story of actual people. However, again, the principle of reciprocity applies to all types, not just eights and twos, and understanding this is key to understanding how we might model the best in others and avoid modeling the worst in others. To get a better sense of how this might apply to the best and the worst of human relating, it'll help if I extend the discussion in the previous episode about three degrees of imitative desire. So that's what we'll look at right now. In mimetic theory, the most basic form of imitation is when we imitate our models. We pick heroes and then we try to emulate them. This means, in effect, latching onto the ideals that they represent for us. If your hero is rich and you see great value in material wealth, you might be attracted to emulating those heroes who, from your perspective, have managed to make sense of the economic system and their work environment. If your hero is intellectually gifted, you might perceive intellect to have a particularly high value, and then you will be likely to emulate those disciplines and processes and ways of thinking that your hero has adopted. So that's the first kind of imitation, the imitation of the model. But... As external mediation becomes internal mediation, which means basically that when the hierarchy that separates you from the model is erased, the model can quite easily turn into a rival. 
There are, of course, different kinds of rivalries. Some are friendly. You and your friend might enjoy playing a sport together or a computer game or board game or maybe involved together in some other uh, aspect of life. And there will be a kind of healthy competitiveness to your relationship that operates with a slightly rivalrous edge. But on the whole, your relationship is one of modeling desires for each other. In this way, you might even bring out the best in each other. In this case, the relationship will remain, in a sense, asymmetrical, since each person will retain their distinctiveness and their identity. So differentiation remains, which you will remember is essential to reducing conflict. However, clearly it is possible for the model to turn into a pure rival. This will be the result of an increasing symmetry and a definite move towards undifferentiation. This usually begins with something that Gerard calls acquisitive mimesis. You can see this in a pronounced way when two little kids fight over a toy and then refuse to share. Two hands reach out for something that is in limited supply. They both want the toy and their shared desire is mutually reinforced. The one wants the toy and therefore the other's desire for the toy is confirmed. Precisely where this might have started, it's not easy to say. One kid might have been playing with the toy fairly disinterestedly, and the other kid might have read the action as a strong desire, and therefore may have reverse-engineered the desire to be copied. Nonetheless, the conflict is obvious. The parent or caregiver needs to step in and create a rule. A rule is, of course, a uh, an act of differentiation, which is always what is needed in the presence of conflict some kind of differentiation. Well, this is what caregivers need to do, but some caregivers merely imitate the desire of their own kid, if the competition is between their kid and the other kid. I've seen this happen, and I think it's a rather childish thing to do if you are a caregiver. It assumes the romantic lie of autonomous desire. But I guess that's just an aside. What usually starts in acquisitive mimesis and thus sets up the model as a rival easily escalates, given the nature of the reciprocity reflex. And this is when the rival becomes an obstacle. At this point in the conflict situation, the object of desire disappears completely and the conflict itself becomes the mimetic desire. A good example of this is found in Homer's Iliad. War is sparked over a shared desire. Helen is married to King Menelaus of Sparta, and Paris of Troy sees her at a meeting with said king and is bowled over by her beauty. Well, that's what he thinks is happening. Helen is no doubt very beautiful, but her beauty is confirmed by the fact that she belongs to a king. So, in reality, Paris ends up imitating King Menelaus's desire for Helen. Paris is particularly prone to acquisitive mimesis, so he kidnaps Helen and thus the Trojan War is sparked. Now that war is waged for about a decade. Why is this? Well, as Helen gets older, she loses her beauty and she ends up fading from the picture. The object of desire, so to speak, is no longer the object of desire. What happens is that the rivalry between Menelaus and Paris, and then between their respective nations, Greece and Troy, turns into a relationship of obstacles. 
This means that the parties involved are in a fierce rivalry over being or existence itself. This manifests as a shared desire to get rid of the other. The other needs, in the view of these people involved in this rivalry, the other needs to be eliminated. This is a terrifying situation, and it's certainly the worst form of conflict. Sometimes, of course, this rival-obstacle relationship can be somewhat simultaneous, and a great deal of violent crime is rooted in something like this, where one party might even be literally killed. Cain kills Abel, Romulus kills Remus. For most people, this desire to kill the other manifests in symbolic actions like firing or dismissing an employee or taking a soldier's rank away or divorce or any sort of abrupt and resentful end to a friendship. Jesus's insight into hatred is profound along these lines. He equates the hatred of the other to murder. And this may seem a bit extreme, but the point is to notice that the underlying motivation is often alarmingly similar to the motivation to kill. Here is where it gets interesting with regard to the Enneagram. Often our reciprocity or imitative instinct, and thus our relationships with models, rivals, and obstacles, is rooted in at least two tiers of mimetic desire. We can quite naturally get into conflicts with those who mimic our most obvious surface desires. So, to take an example, Fours might imitate and then get into conflict with other enneotypes over some unconscious shared desire for uniqueness. But, fours might get into conflict with anyone who seems to possess a sufficiency of being and thus exposes the apparent lack of being of those enneotype fours. This unconscious conflict is symbolized by point one on the enneagram, since it is the point of integration of the point four. But this principle applies to all types. Each type is likely to imitate that which most easily confirms their underlying passion or vice, and is likely to get into rivalry with anyone who confirms that desire in a way that moves towards acquisitive mimesis. But each type is also likely to be in rivalry with anyone who displays that which each type has repressed, so it's much harder to notice. And this is most easily identifiable for each type when you pay attention to the nature of the point of integration on the Enneagram. Strangely enough, this can and often does manifest as sheer antagonism, even though there is always something in rivalry that can teach us how we need to grow. If I, as a five, were to find myself mocking Enneotype 8s for their not-enough-thinking, ready-fire-aim approach to everything and their tendency to fight against reality itself, there's a pretty huge chance that what is underlying my mocking, which is basically a a forgetting of my own motivations, would be a pretty strong sense of a lack in my five-ish being. If you are an eight, the vulnerability of twos might look appalling to you, but there is only one letter different in the words appalling and appealing. What appears appalling is secretly, although you may struggle to admit it, appealing. It takes some discernment to be able to see the connection between the two, and I will happily admit that intuitively this won't necessarily make sense to you, but psychology is always trickier than we would like it to be, since our psyches are built always on opposites. 
a principle called enantiodromia that I'm going to look at in more detail in the following episode. But as I close off, I want to just stress the core implication of all of this for conflicts. The obvious source of conflict is difference. But because it is so obvious, it is actually misleading. The more significant source of conflict is similarity. We fight with our neighbor because, so to speak, we share a fence. What is different is only an issue because of what is shared. And until a non-rivalrous similarity can be established, conflict is likely only to be exacerbated. I'd say that one of the major reasons for increasing relational conflict is a stress on difference, actually. This escalates conflict because it doesn't ever manage to get to the root of the issue. Difference becomes a red herring in a way, and at the same time a fuel on whatever fires might be raging in the realm of the same. If an 8 is in conflict with a 2, and vice versa, for example, you might get fixated on the differences, but these numbers are profoundly connected and are more similar than you may initially think. Secretly, the 8 might not just be resisting the person who is a 2, but also some part of themselves that is very 2-ish. And to get through the conflict, the first step is to figure out what in the other is being imitated, copied, borrowed. That is the thing that needs to be unearthed, that, that needs to be spoken out loud before the conflict can really be resolved. In the light of all that's been said here, some food for thought. If you are someone in the midst of mediating a difficult relationship, or maybe you're in a conflict of sorts, here are some questions that might help you to give you an insight into what's going on. The first question is, what is the shared desire that is at the root of the conflict? Is there more than shared desire present? This question should help us to figure out what we have in common that is working and obviously what we have in common that is not working. The second question is, is there an alternate shared desire that might be agreed upon and worked towards to help mitigate conflict? Then question three, what strengths in the other person are lacking in you? In other, This may help to identify where envy is present. And then fourth question, is there some way that you have projected your own deficiencies onto the other person's nature or personality? And then the last question is, what's worth imitating and reciprocating in this situation and in the people involved? For now, I am fully aware that these questions may be somewhat simplistic, but they are a start. Uh, towards the end of the series, we'll start to look at some more practical ways to make use of the Enneagram and Mimetic Theory, to formulate something of a mimetic and enneagrammatic theory of non-violent communication. But we still have a bit of uh, groundwork that we still need to cover, so in the next episode I'll be looking at the third principle of the enneagram of mimetic desire, which is symbolized by points 5 and 7 on the enneagram, namely what I'm calling the principle of limits. I hope you will join me for that. Until then, cheers everyone. Cheers everyone.